Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have the supremacy in the universe over all things, over hell and all the demons and over Satan, your arch rival, and over all the natural world and all the galaxies that seem to go on and on forever almost, and over all this earth and all the kings and rulers and armies and industries and education and media, you have absolute supremacy. All things were created through you and for you. Now, teach us what it means to preach Christ. This Christ. No small Christ. No tribal deity. No provincial God. The creator, the upholder, the redeemer of the universe who has supremacy at every moment in all things. Come, be our teacher now, I pray. In your holy name, Jesus, amen. By way of review, God does everything for his own glory from beginning to end. He upholds and displays and vindicates his supreme value and beauty. This is good news because God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. God has ordained a universe in which we should never make the choice between pursuing our fullest and longest happiness and pursuing the display of his glory. So the command to glorify God and the command to be fully and eternally happy are the same. That's good news. That's the best of all possible worlds for those who will have it. So the only satisfaction in God that glorifies him is a satisfaction rooted in who he really is, the knowledge of who he really is. And therefore, the life of the mind is very important in sustaining and purifying, that is, making sure it's rooted in the truth of the life of the heart. They may not be separated. As soon as they're separated, we're moving into emotionalism that doesn't glorify God and intellectualism that doesn't glorify God. God didn't give us whole souls with hearts and minds to separate them. He meant them to serve and work together. Now, what does it mean then, in view of all that, to preach Christ? And I have five answers. The first one I spent a bit of time this afternoon rewriting, and it's fresh because I, I've collected a text that I hadn't assembled before, and uh, it's dangerous to do that uh, two hours before you talk. So I'm alerting you to be especially vigilant in testing these things. So here we go. This is, this is point number one, or the first meaning of preaching Christ. Preaching Christ means regularly, and, and I'm, that's an ambiguous and indefined word, and I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to be too 
too sticky on this as to how explicit this becomes in your sermons. Christ, Christ, preaching Christ means regularly making clear that all things exist to display the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is true in the reality of the Trinity, whether that glory is pictured as intrinsically His or His in reflection of the Father's. Now, that's complicated. And I, I sat over that sentence for a long time trying to find a better way to say it. Sorry. <laughs> I haven't got one yet. Maybe I'll get one. In other words... Preaching Christ is going to involve making sure regularly that your people intend for all that you say and all their lives to display the glory of Christ, that the whole universe and all their lives and all their work and all their family and all their desires exist to display Christ. He, he, he created the universe. It's all for Him. Now, we have a trinity to come to terms with and lots of texts that Say it differently. I'm going to give you some examples of, of, of the, my struggle in how to say this. So I added to that sentence, this is true in the reality of the Trinity, whether the glory is pictured in the Bible as intrinsically Christ's or His in reflection of the Father's. I don't think it would be wrong to say that the universe exists for the glory of God or to say that it exists for the glory of God the Father. And it wouldn't be wrong to say it exists for the glory of God the Son, Jesus Christ. How do you put those two together? How should we say it? How do you preach Christ theocentrically? Or should you? So let me give you some text to show you what I'm wrestling with here. We're still on this first point. That you're preaching Christ means regularly making sure you make known that all the universe is about Him and His glory, for Him and His glory. There are texts that show the glory as His. The goal is His. So here, here would be a few examples. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity, period. Not through Him to the Father, just to Him be glory. Okay, that's one. Second Thessalonians 1.12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So the logically supreme reality in that verse is Christ glorified. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or here's another one. Hebrews 13, 21. May the God of peace equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
period. No mention of the Father or God in any other terms than Jesus. Now, here's the second group of texts. Texts that show his glory as reflecting the Father's... How you say this depends on whether you're thinking of the glory as coming from them to us or the praise of his glory going from us to them. Here's here the text. Jude 25. 125. There's only one chapter in Jude. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority. Now, glory is going to God our Savior through Jesus Christ. Or Philippians 1.11. Paul's praying that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Romans 16.27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. One more, Philippians 2.11. That everyone would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now we have two sets of texts. One of them, glorification terminates on Jesus. And in the other, glorification goes through Jesus to the Father. Now here's a third group of texts. And I think this third group of texts show that these two glories, the glory that goes through Jesus to the Father and terminates on Jesus, are one glory because we have a trinity in which I and the Father are one, Jesus said. So you get this, for example, in Titus 2.13. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are one. He is God. He is the Savior. And the glory goes to Him, and they are one. Or 1 Peter 4.11. This is an interesting one. Um, Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom be glory and dominion forever. (laughs) And the the whom there, the the, the relative pronoun, I believe is virtually certain, belongs not with the earlier noun in the sentence, but with the one just before, Jesus Christ. So let me say it again. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. One more. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God has has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ is the glory of God. There's one glory. So... 
I'm trying to argue then, as I try to think, how, how does God want us to preach Christ in view of these on this point of the ultimacy of all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him, Colossians 1.17. The universe is for the glory of Christ. And I think it would be helpful to say we should preach Christ in a profoundly theocentric way, which almost sounds contradictory. Well, shouldn't we be Christocentric when we preach Christ? And you're saying preach Christ theocentrically. And it's just my way of trying to keep the divinity of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the oneness of Christ with the one for whom are all things. What? Romans 11.36, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's referring to God. So, preach Christ make known that all things exist for him because the glory of Christ and the glory of God are one glory because he is God. All the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him, and that's why he has the supremacy. God accomplished the display of his glory in creation... Colossians 1.17, and in redemption, Ephesians 1.6, through the Son. He created through the Son, he redeemed through the Son, so that when the glory starts to come back to him, it comes through the Son. Now, without that strong theocentric preaching of Christ, I think some things suffer. There's a reason behind stressing this. Let me give you three effects. I'll just mention them briefly. We could unpack them, and I've already addressed a couple of them. Three effects that I think are good in magnifying the supremacy of Christ theocentrically, that is, in his unity with the Father and the glory of the Godhead being the point of the universe. One, it protects your preaching, and your gospel from man-centeredness. I think the gospel is such good news that sinful men immediately interpret it with themselves as its terminating point. I am the point of the gospel. It terminates on me. God loves me. Me. Of course, that's true. But we'll talk shortly about what the love of Christ is, and it isn't terminating on me. I'm not the bottom of my joy. But what helps us prevent, what helps prevent that mistake is just constantly, I call it regularly, preaching Christ as the goal and end and meaning and purpose of all things. That's number one implication. Number two, Preaching this way makes sin intelligible. I don't think in the modern world people know what sin is. They think sin is killing people. That's not what sin is. 
That doesn't have anything to do with God until you tell them. Sin is bad deeds in relation to God. And then you have to ask, well, how? How in relation to God? There's no such thing as sin apart from God. The world doesn't know what sin is. They've, they've got guilty consciences, but our job is to help them understand what's wrong. Their problem is not that they kill each other or hate each other. The problem is that that's rooted in hatred of God, disbelief in God. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. And therefore, if, if we don't constantly hold up the purpose of the universe as the glory of God in Christ, sin is going to constantly be deflated in value down to human issues. And when that's the case, the third implication is also brought in, the cross won't make sense. You know, the reason Romans 3, 20 to 26 is structured the way it is with we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory. The reason glory is brought in there is because propitiation won't make sense until we realize sin is an offense against the glory of God. So for those three reasons, I think we do our people a great service by regularly preaching Christ as the purpose of all things and his glory as the goal of all things and do it in a a theocentric way. That's number one. Number two, preaching Christ means preaching that the love of Christ is a God-exalting Christ-exalting love. So right at the heart of, of the gospel, right at the heart of preaching Christ is love. We should preach the love of Christ. <laughs> it was read earlier, wasn't it? Maybe last night, sometime somebody read, um, I bow my knee before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that might, you might be strengthened in the inner man, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith and you may have power with all the saints to know the height and depth and length and breadth and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Paul pleaded with God to help the Ephesians have strength to know an unknowable love. So this should be big in our preaching. The love of Christ for sinners should be really big. So the question is, what is it? The world doesn't, they don't know what sin is. They don't know what love is. You can't know what love is apart from God. That is the love of of Christ, the love of God in Christ for sinners. What is it? Now, I'm going to take you to John 11. So if you want to follow with me, you can go there in your Bibles. John 11, just to give you a glimpse of the kind of thing I'm stressing. John 11, my question is, what does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Okay. One of my life verses is, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
It's one of those sweet places where the Apostle Paul uses the, the, the singular personal pronoun. He loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I want to know that in his dying for me, what did he do that I should feel love? What does it mean that he loves me? Died for me is kind of an open-ended, whoa, 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 what, what does that get me? And how, how's that love for me? And the world inevitably, given the way the mind of the flesh works, interprets love to mean he makes much of me. Period. End of love. Right here. He makes much of me. The world feels loved when they are made much of. Is that what it is? You should feel ambiguous about that. You should be saying, well, he kind of, yes, doesn't he? But is that? So here we are in John 11, first six verses. Jesus, show me from this text what love is. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love, so now I've got love on my radar. He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory. Now I've got glory on my radar, and I want to know the relation. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So I've got glory twice. I'm going to get love again now. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So twice it says that he loved them. And twice it said this illness is about the glory of God. Now follow the logic from verse 5 to 6. And I hope your version has the words needed. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And my version says so, Greek, un, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus is ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. Don Carson does not miss this in his commentary. He's a good exegete, you know that. He's maybe the best in the world, <laughs> but be careful. He doesn't, he doesn't miss that therefore. He loved them, therefore he let him die. We know that from the context. He stayed until he was dead. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And you just stayed there. Why did he do that? The answer is in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So, 
that the Son of God may be glorified. Therefore, since I love you, I'm going to let him die so that you can see more glory. So my definition of what it is to be loved by God is this. God does whatever is necessary in my life to make sure I can see as much of his glory as possible. That's what it means to be loved. And you can see where I'm going. I am arguing that the ultimate end of love is not me, but God. Now, I used to say, and I'm going to show you how I've I've self-corrected on a few things. I I hope I'm still able to do that. Um, I used to use this sentence in speaking a lot. Um, Do you feel more loved by God because he makes much of you or because at great cost to himself, he enables you to enjoy making much of him? And the right answer, of course, was the second. And people over time began to, you know, send me notes and say, are you saying, it sounds like you're saying he doesn't make much of us, or if he does, we shouldn't feel good about it. Is that what you're saying? And, and I can see that that would be implied there. So here's my self-correction, or clarification at least. Um, the, the final question for me is why, uh, why does God, who, who loves me so much and who makes so much of us, I could give you a long list and you could do it yourself, of, of ways that he makes much of you. Let's just say he has adopted you into his family. When you find a foundling on your steps weltering in her blood, Ezekiel 16, and you pick her up, and you clean her off, and you embrace her, and you take her into your family forever, and she becomes an heir of the universe, you've made much of her. Okay? So, yes, God makes much of those whom he saves. Now, the question is, why does he, in the Bible, say over and over again that he does that for his glory. In other words, every point where I feel being made much of, God inserts for my glory, and then it's deflected off of me. If at that moment my pleasure was resting at its bottom, on the me he makes much of and the pleasure in being the me he makes much of, he wouldn't like that. Why? Why why does he constantly deflect our attention on the me he's making much of to the glory of his own name? And here's my answer. Uh, God's love for you that makes much of you for his glory is a greater love than if he ended 
by making you the greatest treasure in your life. Making himself your end is a greater love than making you your end. Here's the reason. The self, no matter how glorified by God. And Romans 8.30 says, those whom he justified, he glorified. You will one day be glorious. What, what, uh, uh, Matthew 13, 43, 41. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I won't be able to look at you. You will be so bright, except that I will have glorified eyes. This is how we can tolerate one another's magnificence. That's true. C.S. Lewis wrote well on that. You've never met a person, he said, on the street in Sydney, who will one day not be so godlike you'll be tempted to worship him, or so demon-like you will shudder in horror. There are no ordinary people. That's, that's what Lewis said. So, my point here is, the reason God is making his glory, not my glorified self, the bottom of my joy, is that the human heart is made for God. God loves his children infinitely. He will not let your glory, which he himself creates and delights in, replace his glory as your supreme treasure. He won't let you. He loves you too much to let you be your treasure. Even your glorified you. Heaven will not be a hall of mirrors where we stand in awe of what we see. Last sentence on this clarification. You are precious to God, and the greatest gift He has for you is to not let your preciousness to Him become your God. Does that make sense? I'm going to say it again. I just think it's really important. You are precious to God. We say that. Say that to your people. And then say, and He loves you too much to let your preciousness to Him become your God. He will be your God. He will be your treasure. Heaven will be a place where in glorious self-forgetfulness, we are constantly growing in joy in the ever new revelations of God's infinite perfections. So, all of that to clarify... What does it mean to preach the love of Christ? When I preach Christ, I want to preach to my people, He loves you. God the Father loves you in the Son, which means, yes, He makes much of you. He forgives you. He propitiates your 
his wrath against you. He justifies you and counts you as perfect in his sight. He reconciles you to himself. He sanctifies you. One day that sanctification will be completed in such a glorious being. There will be no flaw in you at all. And he loves you so much, he won't let that be your God. Rather, all of that is designed to fit you to enjoy him forever. That's point number two. Point number three about what it means to preach Christ. Preaching Christ involves preaching the cross from its eternal foundation past to its eternal consummation future. Preaching Christ will have as its center, and I've got five points, and this is three in the middle. The center will be the cross from its foundation in eternity to its consummation in eternity. And I think the best thing I could do to unpack this point, and I have to do it quicker than I would like, is to tell you what I think it means to preach the cross that way. That is, what is the gospel? I should just lay my cards on the table in Sydney. What is the gospel? Okay? And here they are. I've chosen to say it in six points. They'll go by quick enough. If any one of these six is pulled out, there is no gospel. That's how I've chosen them. Number one, the cross or the gospel was planned from eternity. And I get that from the most important, or let's say the most explicit definition of the gospel in the New Testament, namely 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, the gospel, how Christ died for our sins. Next phrase. According to the Scriptures, meaning it was planned. Why would Paul bother to put that there? I mean, that seems sort of marginal. It's not marginal. The cross was not a a second thought. It wasn't an afterthought. Like, oh, the world messed up and I've got to fix it. Maybe, Maybe cross. Way before creation, this thing was planned. And the way we know that is that in Revelation 13, 8, there's a book. You know the name of the book in which your name is written? The book is called The Book of the Life of the Lamb that Was Slain. And your name, it says, was written there before the creation. Jesus Christ crucified was in the mind of God forever. The implications of this are massive. Nothing in this universe has taken God by surprise, especially the fall. I'll stop there. Could take a half an hour on that. 
Number two. So first, to preach the gospel is to preach that it was, or what is the gospel? The gospel was a plan of God from eternity. Number two, the cross is an event in history because it says in that same text, I'm trying to get most of these points from that text, Jesus Christ died under Pontius Pilate. It's good to say that in our confessions. It's an event. Christ died. If this were not historically true, as Islam says, there would be no gospel, which is where we should be focusing with Islam, by the way, not on the character of Allah or whatever, but Jesus Christ didn't die and rise again for sinners. They have no blood, no substitution, no redemption, no gospel. We have spectacular news for Muslims. We should seek a hearing. That's number two. It's an event. Number three, the cross was in the event an achievement, a once-for-all divine achievement. And you, if, you, if you know the book, you're hearing behind this um, John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I could use the word, it was an accomplishment. So before you were born, something was achieved in the event of the death of Jesus for you. And I'll list off three of those things. These are essential to the gospel. Number one... The wrath of God was absorbed by Jesus Christ for his elect. Romans 8, 3, I'm talking about the penal substitution here. Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Question, whose sin? Tell me. What? Yeah, there are a lot of right answers. Mine, yours, ours, not Jesus. Whose flesh? Jesus, that substitution and penal, clear as can be. N.T. Wright nails this in his commentary. Doesn't nail everything. I just want to give him credit that you read that big fat commentary, not the little one, but the big fat one on Romans 8, 3. Galatians 3, 13. He redeemed us. Having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So two texts, and you could do another one from Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. The father bruised the son. So at least three texts, just massive pillars underneath the doctrine of the wrath of God landed on the Son, and that's why it doesn't land on us. That was achieved. You don't make that happen when you get saved. The cross made that happen. Number two, in what happened, 
in uh, the achievement is sins were covered. Or you could say forgiveness was purchased. He canceled the record of debts that stood against us with their legal demands. Colossians 2.14. When Christ died, God canceled the debts of his elect. He canceled them. They're gone. That was an achievement. And third, he completed a perfect righteousness which later at my conversion through faith will be counted as mine. But here is the achievement. A life, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. In Philippians 3, 8 and 9, it says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which is based on law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's justification. That happens at conversion. But we're Where did that righteousness get provided? If you go back to Philippians 2, have this mind in you which is also in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in human form, and being found in the likeness of men. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Now, the interesting thing about that is Paul collapses the life of Jesus into one statement. Took on human form, being found in human form, he became obedient unto death. Bang, that's his life. That's all. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So you got incarnation, death, and what's it defined as? Obedience. I think that's the setup for 3.8. 2.8 is the setup for 3.8. What, what righteousness is coming through Jesus Christ, is counted as mine, that's so alien to me? Where did it come from? This is my obedience. Right here. He did what I couldn't do. So what I'm saying is, is that the cross is the consummation, the completion of that obedience. Which is why I think in places like Romans, we are said to be justified by the blood. I don't think that's a contradiction to say we are justified by the imputation of the perfect obedience of Christ. The blood there stands for the death, which is the consummation. The one supreme completing act of obedience was death. But Paul sees the death and the incarnation and everything in between. It's just one grand obedience. So those three things at least. The wrath was absorbed. Sins were covered and forgiveness was purchased. And righteousness was completed, all that achieved 2,000 years ago, we weren't even on the scene. That's the achievement of the cross. There's more. We could talk about the devil being defeated and so on, the decisive blow, but can't say everything. Number four. This is four in unpacking what is the gospel, what is the cross. Fourth, the gospel is a free offer that all of that can be yours through faith alone. 
the free offer that all of that can be yours through faith alone. Now, I know this is a little tricky, and here I don't think N.T. Wright gets it right in how he talks about the gospel. It's muddy at least. I'm arguing that you may have it for faith alone. Believe is part of the gospel, even though I say believe the gospel. You see the tension? I say, believe the gospel, and now I'm saying that statement is the gospel. I asked Don Carson, I said, do you think that's right? Should I say that? Do you think the free offer of this achievement is part of the gospel? He said, absolutely. And the reason is because there's no good news if it's by works. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. That's part of the gospel. If, if, the, if the news went out from the cross, Christ died for you, work hard, and maybe you'll have it. Zero gospel. Zero gospel. So I'm, I'm going to stand by this and say the offer to faith alone, apart from works, is an essential point of the gospel. Here's number five. The cross, the accomplishment of the cross is applied by the Holy Spirit to all believers. And that application through faith alone is the gospel. And here's what I have in mind by the application. So this is redemption accomplished 2,000 years ago and applied by the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion and regeneration through faith alone. Reconciliation. Having been justified by his blood, we have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And how's it go? If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That reconciliation becomes a reality for us when we're united to Christ through faith. Second, forgiveness becomes mine. Ephesians 1, 7. Third, justification or the imputed righteousness of Christ becomes mine. Fourth, eternal life, John 17, 3, becomes mine. I am not yet saved because Christ purchased my salvation at the cross. I am saved by grace through faith. That achievement becomes mine to be enjoyed forever at the point of my faith and my regeneration, my union with Christ. Now, that's five points which I think are the gospel, and almost all evangelicals stop there. Maybe that's an overstatement. My, my experience is that we love to bring people to that point and, and then sing our lungs out about being forgiven and being reconciled and being justified and eternal life. And, and I don't think the good news has come yet. Maybe the most provocative way I could say it is, who cares about being forgiven? Why would you care about being forgiven? Now, there, there's a right answer to that question and a wrong answer. One honors God and the other doesn't. There's a lot of wrong answers, in fact. Here's a couple. 
I don't want to go to hell, for goodness sakes. And if my sins are forgiven, I'm, I'm not in hell. Or, number two, wrong answer, I hate a guilty conscience. I hate going to work with a guilty conscience. I really like having peace of conscience. And number three, wrong answer would be, God, if my sins are forgiven, I'd probably be a better husband. wouldn't be, you know, thinking about myself all the time. I'd be more into my wife and would be... You know what's missing? God! The gospel is not good news until we realize that reconciliation, forgiveness, justification, and eternal life are taking us somewhere. And there is a key text. And the text is second, I mean, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And until that is spoken, I don't think we've spoken the full gospel. We've left people vulnerable to go right into themselves as the end of the gospel. It's all about me. Until... God has made the goal of the gospel. So I wrote a whole book on this called God is the Gospel. Risky title, but you say risky things when you're worked up. So let me put it like this, and this will be the end of this this third point. Um, God's glory would not be exalted as it should be unless... He becomes for us both redeemer and reward, price and pearl, sacrifice offered and satisfaction enjoyed. See those three columns? I'll say them again because this column over here, all preachers of the gospel say this. And I'm saying, this is vulnerable to all kinds of mistakes unless we say this. So we say, Redeemer, yes, but he's redeeming us for something. What? Himself as our reward. We say, a price was paid for us. Jesus is the price of my salvation. What did he buy? He bought God. For me. Fellowship with God for me. We say he's our sacrifice. He was sacrificed. Sacrificed to do what for me? To make me satisfied in God. Those are my six statements of what the gospel is. So preaching Christ means preaching the cross from eternity past in its foundation in the the book, in the plan, the plan to eternity future, which is God himself as our reward. Number four, 
Preaching Christ involves preaching conversion as God's opening blind eyes to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. We preach to people who are blind. And preaching Christ means communicating to them, you must be born again. You must be healed from your blindness. You must be raised from the dead. And that will mean seeing Christ for who he really is. That's your deadness. Your deadness is that you see him as a mere man or boring or an ethical teacher. You don't see him. You're blind. You're dead. You must awake. Awake, O sleeper. That's the gospel. Awake, O sleeper. And Christ will be your light. In my text is 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6, massively shaping in my understanding of, of how the gospel, what it is and how it works in preaching. So let's just read 4, 5, and 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in the case of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're blind. To keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel. What is the light of the gospel? It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God. So, what, what, the deadness and the lostness in, in Australia, America, New Zealand, wherever. The deadness is blindness to glory. Blindness to glory, that's that's what lostness means. They can't see God as beautiful. They can't see Jesus as compellingly, attractively beautiful. They're blind to it. He's just water off a duck's back. It doesn't land. What needs to happen? Verse 6 needs to happen. This is what we preach. For God who said... When he created the world, let light shine out of darkness, has done something similar now in our hearts, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So how did you get saved? Why does any of you in this room see Christ as compelling? Because that happened to you. God shone in your heart to give light. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, which is the light of the gospel. It's the same as verse 4. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you have the glory of Christ, the image of God in verse 4, and you have the glory of God in the face of Christ, verse 6, And the reason it's seen and loved, believed, embraced in verse 6 is because God said, light might have happened when you were four years old. You don't even remember it. I don't remember being saved. I know how I got saved because of this verse, not because I remember it. My guess is your memory is pretty bad anyway. For some of you, it's gloriously clear 
and you're able to bear witness to all the circumstances around it, what God used. But for many of you who, like me, grew up in a Christian home, you don't even remember being an unbeliever. I don't. My mother told me I prayed to receive Jesus when I was six at a motel in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, after my sister witnessed to me. I don't remember that at all. I, I believe her. But that isn't the basis of my understanding of my conversion. This is, this, this is the basis. I, I believe one of my jobs as a pastor is to constantly help people understand how they got saved. Hundreds of people come to my church with not a clue how they got saved. They're Arminian to the core. They don't know how they got saved. You have to help people understand what, how they came alive. They don't know how they got alive. And, and it's, I'll tell you, the things, the beautiful, wonderful things that happen in their lives when they find out how they got saved, like the, their power bumps up a level, their confidence and assurance bumps up a level, and their boldness bumps up a level, because preaching Christ is preaching what is, what, what is conversion? Conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit, opening the eyes of the blind, defeating the devil, so that they see Christ in the gospel as magnificently glorious and are drawn to him irresistibly and freely. So that's point number four. Preach conversion as the opening of the eyes of the blind to glory, the glory of Christ, and base it on 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 6. Finally, last point, number five. Preaching Christ involves preaching sanctification as the effect of seeing the glory of Christ. So you see what's common? The common denominator in all five of these points is, is the glory of Christ. Preaching sanctification as the effect of the glory of seeing the glory of Christ. And you know where I'm going to get that. Same text, just a few verses earlier. Forget the chapter division. End of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, this is after he's gone back to heaven. He's not here physically. Paul knew that. This is, this is verse 6 of chapter 4 he's talking about. God shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Only here he's talking about it in its effect on us. So, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one, from the, in the, in the, into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. That's sanctification. How do your people get changed? That's a huge question for you to answer as a pastor. How do they fall out of love with money and fall out of love with covetousness and greed and pride and anger and all kinds of idols? How do they fall out of love and fall more into love with Jesus and, and then bear the fruits of that change. And this is the answer. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. So you can see what preaching is. Just show him as glorious. These, your people are not adept at seeing the glory of Jesus. 
This is a lifelong quest for you, and you need to be a few steps ahead of them on this and help them week after week and then help them with some skills for their own personal Bible reading so that day after day they can feed themselves on the glory of Christ. And that question that was asked me, what about sin being wonderful one day and Christ being wonderful the next? This is the only answer I know. Help your people look at him and look at him and look at him and the Holy Spirit just keeps opening and opening, and sometimes our sin closes our eyes and we open them again, which is why I pray every time I open my Bible almost, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your word, because if the Holy Spirit doesn't do that, I see blank marks on a page and nothing happens. So, preaching Christ means preaching sanctification, not as works by which you earn anything, but as the effect of seeing the glory of Christ. And I think the way it works, I just, this could be a sermon in itself, but let's give a sentence. I think the reason it works that way is because when you see him, you become more satisfied with him. And when you're satisfied with him, your satisfaction in sin goes down. And when you admire him, you tend to become like what you admire. As kids, when you had a a rock star, a sports star, you wanted to dress like him. It says there's something built in. Admiration breeds imitation. So at least those two things are functioning probably when we are beholding the glory of the Lord. So I close one minute summary. Preaching Christ involves preaching that, number one, God's ultimate purpose is to display His glory through Christ. Preach the supremacy of Christ's glory theocentrically. Number two, preaching Christ means preaching the love of God in Christ as the gift of Himself, ultimately. Even though He makes much of us, He won't let our preciousness to him become our God. He will be our God, and our preciousness is under that, leading us to see more of him. Three, preaching Christ means preaching the cross from its foundation in eternity to its consummation in the enjoyment of God in the future. Four, preaching Christ means preaching conversion as the spiritual, miraculous gift of seeing the glory of Christ in the gospel. And preaching Christ means preaching sanctification as the effect of seeing the glory of Christ. When we are fully purchased and converted and sanctified in this way, in the end we will be fully satisfied in Jesus and he will be fully glorified in us. So, Father, I ask now that you would help these these here who are preachers and those who love them and support them like the, the precious wives who are here who hear this impossible burden being put on their husband to preach this glorious Christ May they see him, help him, strengthen him, be at his side all the way. 
point him to Christ when he's dark. And so be an indispensable cog in this glorious wheel that turns for the glory of Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.